So the first wedding that I ever conducted as a pastor, officiated, was perhaps the largest wedding in terms of the attendance of the congregation that I'd ever done in my entire life. I was very nervous. And so i am got my notes all ready and the bride comes down. We do all the thing and we stand up on the platform and I go through the whole wedding. Everybody does their things just right. Nobody faints, nobody dies. Everybody, and the couple is married. And I look up at the end and the congregation... 600-some people have been standing for the entire wedding. I never sat them down, and they never got a clue. And people said afterwards, you know, that was a very unusual way of doing things, that you had the congregation stand for the whole wedding. I go, yes, it was somewhat unusual, wasn't it? I didn't add... And I was a complete idiot, okay? Uh, This morning, I want to invite you to the first wedding, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Open your Bibles there, if you will. And we are not just going to talk about weddings. Frankly, uh, I think what's happening in our culture as we have diminished and emptied marriage of its meaning, we have gotten more and more enthralled at weddings. And I think it maybe ought to go a little bit of a different direction. But um, what we will look at here is the joy of marriage. The joy of marriage. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Please have a seat. Let's look at the glory of leadership and the pain of being alone here. Something is not good in creation. In chapter 1, verses 4, 10, 18, 21, 25, and 31, we saw good, 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 very good. And now all of a sudden here in chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said in the first words at the beginning of the sentence to emphasize it in Hebrew, not good. Something is Not good. The aloneness of a human being is not good. It is why solitary confinement is a punishment. Men and women need each other. Marriage is God's way of uniting one man to one woman for life. It's generally true that aloneness is not good, and it is specifically true in the general case of marriage that aloneness is not good. Now, 
There are exceptions, aren't there? Uh, I don't want to, uh, and, and literally everything I say here could be a whole message in itself, so just know I'm hitting high spots here. But in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul advocates for singleness. Uh, singleness is not the place of despair. And marriage is not necessarily the place of joy that many who should know better assume. There is a place uh, in God's world for single people and for married people, all to be engaged in lives of joy and fulfillment. However, in the general case, most people get married. What is sad is that today in our culture, marriage has been diminished. It's been diminished by several things. It's been diminished and emptied, I should say. Diminished, first of all, by living together. A lot of people will live together rather than get married. And so uh, the number of unmarried partners living together has tripled in the last two decades in the United States. Uh, 50 years ago, uh, 18 to 24-year-olds who were living with their partner was 0.1% of the population. Today, it is 7%. Or 9%, sorry. Uh, the number of 25 to 34-year-olds 50 years ago who lived with someone was 0.2%. Today, it's 15%. So, marriage is diminished by that. It's diminished by uh, being emptied of its meaning when the whole issue of what is termed same-sex marriage, that's an oxymoron in terms of the Scriptures, but it is something that is out there that has caused people, in fact, to in fact, some of the advocates of same-sex marriage, their ambition was to empty marriage of its meaning, and they have, in some measure, succeeded. Then uh, people delay marriage, uh, and so the number of young adults who are married has declined over time. Uh, Forty years ago, 59% of uh, young adults, 18 to 34, were married. Today, that number is 30%. And in recent years, marriage rates have fallen to the lowest level in the 118-year period covered by those who analyze such demographics. So this plays out in several ways. One is that with the rise of a feminist ideology, there is this thought that I don't need, I don't need a man to fulfill me, and men can have the attitude of, till I get someone I can dominate and rule, and neither thing is a place of joy. Gloria Steinem is famous for the old saw, which actually is pretty clever. A woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. Um, but it presents a false idea, doesn't it? The belief that we do not need people of the other gender. It's just not true any more than the idea that many men have of their superiority is true. Now, it is certainly true that some will stay in the most intolerable abusive relationships just to avoid being alone. Adam felt the incompleteness of being alone as he named the animals, which, by the way, is a description of his authority. God had given him this stewardship of naming things. And by the way, what you name things is a, 
a demonstration of authority. Here's one example. Uh, people who are pro-abortion uh, call themselves, I am for a woman's right to choose. By using that name, they're asserting authority over the issue. A person who is pro-life says, I am in favor of giving babies life and not in favor of killing babies in their womb. It's, it's about the naming, okay? That's something that people do. It's something that God gave us to do. And we can do it wrongly or rightly, but it's something that we do. Adam has this incompleteness as he names the animals because he's alone in it. There's, there's no one who is suitable for him. And we feel the incompleteness of being alone in our ways of expressing the image of God, don't we? We devise a lot of wrong ways to avoid being alone and to have a helper suitable for us. Whether it's same-sex marriage or the false fulfillments of aloneness, like spending all our time on the internet or being involved in virtual reality or video gaming. Some simply deal with their aloneness with a bitterness that just keeps eating away at them, and others deal with it with a sadness that's in their hearts. And I may be speaking to you today as you're coping with this aloneness. One that's a topic that's coming up uh, more and more in, the, in our culture is the, reason, the increasing sense of reasonableness about polygamy, having more than one spouse that that's something that now is a way of dealing with this sense of aloneness. And then there is what's called serial polygamy, having one spouse at a time and just kind of going from one to the other and multiple arrangements. There's lots of ways that we are longing to fulfill this sense of aloneness and are seeking ways to fill that hole in our hearts and it makes a mess. So, let's look at the beginning here and find some joy. The creation of the ordered pair in verses 21 to 23. Now, notice that God is the doer of the action here. Adam didn't have anything to do about the choosing of his spouse. Uh, Eve did not have anything to do with the choosing of her spouse, you know, sometimes today we go, well, how will I know if I, was, if, if I found the right one or not? Adam and Eve did not have to worry about that question. <laughs> it, it was found for them, right? God's the doer of the action. Adam is not even a conscious participant. A deep sleep is mentioned. And God takes from the side of the man and makes the woman. This word take is a common word all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, for what marriage is. You take a spouse. And notice that the woman is made from the same substance as the man. So there is a similarity of man and woman. It's not as far apart as men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Or as my mother-in-law said one time, men are from Mars, women are from the earth. It's not as far apart as that, is it? There is a sense of sameness about how we are because we're made of the same stuff. But the woman is different than the man. There is a fundamentally complementary nature to the relationship. 
God's ordered design was the uniquely fulfilling complement to the man in the creation of the woman, a helper exactly suitable for the man. And notice that the helper is, I will make a helper, not multiple helpers. The idea of monogamy is inherent in this creative act of God. And you see it all through this text. The man will leave his father and his mother, just one and one, and hold fast to his wife, singular. There's a complementary unity in the way God provides that all alternatives to God's way cannot. We can cast about for all kinds of possible solutions to this problem of aloneness, but in the one that God has brought to us here in this joy of marriage, there is a complementary unity that you don't see in other alternatives. So it seems to me that we need to develop ways of communicating the joy of God's way rather than merely the rejection of all other ways. Yes, as believers, we reject the other ways, but we have missed the opportunities to communicate the joy of God's way. This communication of the joy of God's way should impact how we respond to various challenges to God's way in our world today. Now, in verse 22, God builds or fashions the woman from the man's side and presents her to the man. Again, note that neither the man nor the woman carry the action. God does. And the man expresses his joy in verse 23 at the presence of the one whom God designed to address the aloneness of man. You know, when you read verse 23, you see this man waking up, and there presented before him is this woman. Like him, but not like him. Like him, but the perfect complement to him. And I don't think he said it this way, verse 23. I don't think he said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That is not how he said it. I think rather he went, Woo! (laughs) At last! This! is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called Isha because she's taken out of Ish. You see that in the Hebrew, there's this connection of towardness to one another, a compliment but different. It's beautiful. About the best I can see in uh, the secular world on this is soul singer Etta James' song, At Last. I'm thinking Adam could have sung this song. At last. I'm not going to sing it. (laughs) My love has come along. My lonely days are over and life is like a song. Oh, yeah, yeah, at last. The skies above are blue. My heart was wrapped up in clover the night I looked at you. I found a dream that I could speak to. I could speak to. 
a dream that I could call my own. I found a thrill to rest my cheek to a thrill that I have never known. Oh, yeah, yeah, you smile, you smile, and oh, then the spell was cast. And here we are in heaven, for you are mine at last. It's a closeness of kinship, of a family, of covenant loyalty, of a category different from the rest of creation. Feel the joy, brothers and sisters. Feel the joy. Now, the man names the woman, which reveals the intimacy and perhaps a hinting of authority, but let's be careful on that, especially when people today think that all mention of authority carries the connotation of domination and control. That's not what's behind it here. Rather, it's the idea of stewardship, of a guarding of, a protection. There's definitely a leadership followership idea in this original marriage bond, but it must ever be emphasized. This is a joyous connection, a union of compliments, and a profound relationship of unity in the complement. Now, there are feminist interpreters of Scripture that do not like this. They understand what the text means, but what they do is they want to even attempt to dissociate marriage today from this origin of marriage text. In other words, they'll grant that the text points where what we're talking about says. Yeah, it says that. But then they try very hard to say that that shouldn't be a pattern for today's modern marriages. As I mentioned, even the Hebrew pronunciation suggests this joyous compliment of stewardship. There's two words for man in this text. The word Adam means man, and Adam came from the ground, Adama, Adam, Adama. And then the other word for man in this text is the word Ish, and the woman comes from the man, Ish, Isha. Do you see that? It's called a locative hay, in case you're interested in the Hebrew. But the idea is that there's a towardness of the man with the woman, a towardness of the man with the earth from which he comes. It's a source and direction that is beautiful and filled with joy. So, what does the creation of man and woman mean in verses 24 and 25? Up to this point, we've had a straight narrative of what's happened. But beginning with verse 24, what you have is Moses taking up his pen and writing a, an editorial comment for you and me on what this means. What does this thing that happened here, what does it mean for us? So it's Moses' commentary, which actually, by the way, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is God's commentary on what it means. What does it mean? It means this pairing of a man and woman will cause a complete change in their prior relationships. They leave father and mother. The one place where they had been nurtured and raised and built up, marriage is so powerfully joyous that they will leave that, they will abandon that for this new pairing relationship. Now, some people mess up, don't they, by not completely leaving mother and father. And I can tell you stories of people who have marriages that are messed up because one or the other or both of them don't leave mom and dad. And parents also need to give their blessing to the leaving 
and not want to call it back and say, now I want to have some way that I can influence and kind of help you know better because I know better how you should run your life. <laughs> no, it, this cause a man leaves his father and mother. He holds fast to his wife. There's all the dangers of failure here, aren't there? Of loyalty, of meeting aloneness, needs of control, of not accounting for the loss. But what this pairing is, is a holding fast to his wife. Monogamy. God's plan is not polygamy. Polygamy is presented in the Bible as a fact, not as a recommendation. In fact, everywhere you see polygamy described in the Bible, it is presented with all of its attendant problems. What we have here is a commitment. One person to another person. That's what love is. It involves affection, emotion, joy, sorrow, grandeur, and disappointment, but it is primarily commitment. The fact that Jesus quotes this text shows that he, in fact, did address the issues of polygamy and same-sex marriage. Some people want to argue Jesus never addressed those things. Oh, yes, he did. In Matthew 19, he was asked a question by the Pharisees, and he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? A man will leave his father and mother and be, hold fast to his wife. The two become one flesh. Both the complementariness of man and woman and the exclusiveness of one man and one one woman and one woman. So we might ask the question, well, what does it mean to be one flesh? When Moses says they shall become one flesh, what does that mean? Well, I describe it in circles. That there are these circles that are wrapped around a couple when they get married that show the really powerful union that is being established. Let me go through the four of them that I, I think is going on here with this one flesh. First, there's a legal circle that establishes the biting commitment. There's a joy of stability, certainty, and destiny there. Everybody knows they are for the other. Secondly, there is a family circle that establishes a serving commitment. It's a sharing of responsibility, of money, of home, of children, of ministry. It's why the Ruth 1.16 verse is used in the context of marriage, even though Ruth is talking to Naomi. It's the idea of a serving commitment in a family. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. It's also found in that love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Love always protects, always hopes, um, always trusts, always perseveres. Then there's the spiritual circle that gets wrapped around us when we marry. That's the essence of the marital commitment. It's bigger than any of us, and it's more than mouthing a vow or sharing a house. The Apostle Paul says of it in Ephesians 5.32, I'm, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The very fact that he calls a mystery profound and then has to add that it's about Christ and the church suggests that there's something profoundly mysterious about marriage too. The cosmic meaning of marriage remains regardless of how pathetically short we fall of that grand design. The spiritual circle is in Peter Marshall's words, the fusion of two hearts, the union of two lives, the coming together of two tributaries which will flow in the same channel and the same direction. So we've got the legal circle, the 
family circle, the spiritual circle, which is kind of an inexpressible spiritual union. Now we have the physical circle of human intimacy as the expression of that inexpressible spiritual union. In the Song of Songs, uh, Song of Solomon, it's one whole book of the Bible devoted to this. In verse chapters 1, verses 15 and 16, the man says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. The woman responds, How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The physical circle is an expression of the inexpressible spiritual union. It is the permanence of one flesh that prompted Jesus to say then after he quoted these verses, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Because try as we might, we'll never completely sever in this life all four of those circles that get wrapped around you when you get married. I could go into detail on that, but, you know, the judge can say you're not married anymore. You'll always have some relationship, even if you just call them your ex. You are related to them, so that family circle. The spiritual union is something that is very difficult to be able to say that it's completely erased. So there's ways in which we can say that uh, we'd never completely sever relationships in this life. Notice the last phrase here in verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. Again, monogamy here, one man, one woman. But the, and most of the time when we see this, we think very, in very literal terms. It's about physical nature. And of course, it is true that it, is, it does have a physical meaning here. But I also think that there's something more to this naked and not ashamed than the physical nature of their connection. It is that they are, as husband and wife, completely open to one another and completely connected to one another. Have you ever reached a point in some of you who have been married go, I don't understand them at all. Adam and Eve, before they sinned, never had that problem. And so, we'll get to chapter 3 here, uh, we'll find out what happened to mess it up, but our goal then is to look at the original design and seek as best we can to become people redeemed by Jesus Christ and red-hot worshipers of His holy name to come back to this place of what... Uh, Christian psychologist John Powell called leaving, cleaving, and weaving. So we leave our parents, we cleave, we hold fast to our spouse, and then here in verse 25, we weave together a life joyous and one. Now, as we look at the span of this beautiful text, we have to say that there's a number of applications we can draw. This text addresses contemporary issues like uh, polygamy and same-sex marriage. It addresses the concerns that people have about the mess that we've made of marriage, the feminist abandonment of the so-called need of men, as well as the male effort to control or domineer. Those are really 
firmly rejected by a text like this. And it also addresses the despair that people have about marriage and family. This is something that is increasing in our culture, a sense of despair about it. And what this does is holds, us out, holds out the hope and the wonder and the joy of it. This text, as Jesus notes clearly, makes a statement about the permanence of the marriage bond in this life, doesn't it? And it would take an entire series of messages to unpack what that means in contemporary culture regarding subjects like divorce or remarriage. But I'll just add by way of application that the starting point for talking about those kinds of issues must be where Jesus starts at the beginning in the establishment of the marital bond. And so whatever we think about the painful topic of divorce or the painful topic of thinking about what are the reasons for remarriage, it's the height of folly to start with a conclusion, to say this is what I think, and then try to find proof for it somewhere. Rather, we should look at what the Scripture says and seek to draw our conclusions from it in that direction. The conclusion of Jesus on these matters is what God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage being what it is, there can never be a complete separation of those circles that get wrapped around you when you and your spouse marry. Uh, one other thing that I will add uh, on this is that there's a number of you that are single. Some of you are widowed, some divorced, some are never married yet. Uh, marriage is the second most important decision you will make in your life. The first, of course, is your putting your hope and faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sin. But the decision about marrying is often made with far less reflection than it should be. You should not make that decision based on, well, I guess I'm getting old enough, I'd better go get married. Some people will marry someone, the first person that when they have decided I'm old enough to get married, the next person they date that would say yes to them, they would marry. It's not a very good plan. Or these days, there are, there are, believe it or not, people who get married because they like the idea of having a wedding. They just like the idea. They, they, they think, I want to have a beautiful big party, and here's a person who will be with me for that. Kind of reminds me of the old sign outside a jewelry store in Southern California, we rent wedding rings. Or how about the idea of we look good together? There are people who will marry because they think that, well, there's, that, that kind of looks good. It works out. Over the years, I have heard, I suppose, hundreds of statements that divorcing people say as how all of a sudden they are now awakened to all the reasons why it is biblically justifiable for them to divorce their spouse. And as I hear their stories, my heart is broken for the pain that they are encountering, but I also have a longing in my heart. The longing in my heart is, I wish the wisdom of that hindsight would be gained as foresight to anyone who is getting, heading toward marriage. 
Wherever possible, this second most important decision must be bathed in prayer. So parents, I hope you will pray daily for your children on this matter of the decisions that they will make in leaving you (laughs) to be joined to their spouse. And that those of you who are contemplating getting married someday, even if there isn't anybody that's right on the ready for it, that you would pray, Lord, guide me. Guide me rightly to just the right person. Many years ago, well, it was when I was in college, Josh McDowell came to the University of Illinois to do a series of apologetics talks, and one talk was on marriage and family, and in it he said, you know, the Bible says don't be married, uh, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, which is certainly true, right? We shouldn't marry someone who doesn't share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he says, I'd like to give the Josh corollary. The Josh corollary is, don't be unequally yoked with believers. (laughs) What he meant by that is, don't just marry someone because they say they believe in Jesus. Don't marry someone because they, you know, well, I guess they're a good enough Christian. No, no, no. You, You would seek to marry someone who has the same flaming passion for worship of Jesus Christ that you possess. And if they don't have that, they're not your spouse. Don't go there. Don't be unequally yoked with believers. But mostly, mostly here in this passage, this text reveals the joy of God's design in the exclusive, beautiful, permanent covenant relationship of marriage. How can one look at that phrase, one flesh, and not see a permanence? How can one look at Adam's response to the woman and not see joy? How can one look at Moses' commentary on the matters about marriage and not see an enduring institution of marriage and family across all cultures and true for all time? And so... I leave you with this last word of application and a story. It is selfishness that can hinder our joy. Where we are determined to be selfish, it will hinder our joy. And I'll tell you this story that was published in, I think, the 1960s in Women's Day magazine. Uh, It's an imaginary story about a guy who said he sailed to Kinawata, doesn't exist, it's just made up, an island in the Pacific. He says, I took along a notebook. After I got back, it was filled with descriptions of flora and fauna, customs, costume, but the note that still interests me is the one that says, Johnny Lingo gave eight cows to Sarita's father. Now this story is going to have all kinds of anachronisms that will sound strange to our 2022 ears, But bear with it, there's a good point to be made. Every time he says, I see a woman belittling her husband or a wife withering under her husband's scorn, I want to say to them, you should know why Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for his wife. Johnny Lingo wasn't exactly his name, but that's what Schenken, the manager of the guest house on Kinawata, called him. Schenken was from Chicago and had a habit of Americanizing the names of the islanders. 
But Johnny was mentioned by many people in many connections. If I wanted to spend a few days on the neighboring island of Nurabandi, Johnny Lingo was there and would put me up. If I wanted to fish, he'd show me where the biting was best. If it was pearls, he could bring me the best buys. People of Kinawata all spoke highly of Johnny Lingo, yet when they spoke, they smiled, and the smiles were slightly mocking. Get Johnny Lingo to help you find what you want, and let him do the bargaining advice, Schenken. Johnny knows how to make a deal. Johnny Lingo, a boy seated nearby, who did the name, rocked with laughter. What goes on, I demanded. Everybody tells me to get in touch with Johnny Lingo, and then breaks up. Let me in on the joke. Oh, the people like to laugh, Schenken said. Johnny's the brightest, strongest young man in the islands for his age, the richest. If that's he's all you say, then wh what is there to laugh about? Only one thing. Five months ago at the fall festival, Johnny came to Kinawata and found himself a wife. He paid the father eight cows. I knew enough about island customs to be impressed. Two or three would buy a fair to middling wife, four to five, a highly satisfactory one. Goodness, I said, eight cows. She must have beauty that takes your breath away. Well, she's not ugly, he conceded, but the kindest could only call Sarita plain. Sam Carew, her father, was afraid she'd be left on his hands. But then he got eight cows for her? Isn't that extraordinary? Never been paid before. And you call Johnny's wife plain? I said it would be kindness to call her plain. She was skinny. She walked with her shoulders hunched and her head ducked. She was scared of her own shadow. Well, I said, I guess there's no accounting for love. True enough, agreed the man. That's why the villagers grin when they talk about Johnny. They get special satisfaction from the fact that the sharpest traitor in the islands was bested by dull old Sam Carew. But how? No one knows. Everybody wonders. All the cousins were urging Sam to ask for three cows and hold out for two until he was sure Johnny would pay only one. Then Johnny came to Sam Carew and said, Father of Sarita, I offer eight cows for your daughter. Eight cows, I murmured. I'd like to meet this Johnny Lingo. I wanted to fish, I wanted pearls, so the next afternoon I went to Nurabandi and I noticed as I asked directions to Johnny's house that his name brought no sly smile to the lips of the fellow Nurabandians. And when I met the slim, serious young man, he welcomed me with grace to his home. I was glad that from his own people he had respect unmingled with mockery. We sat in his house and talked and he asked, you come here from Kinawata? Yes. They speak of me on that island? They say there's nothing I might want that, they, that you can't help me get. He smiled gently. My wife is from Kinawata. Yeah, I know. They speak of her? A little. What do they say? Why, well, just the question caught me off balance. They told me you were married at festival time. Nothing more? The curve of his eyebrows told me he knew there had to be more. They also say the marriage settlement was eight cows. They wonder why. They ask that, his eyes lightened with pleasure. Everyone in Kinawata knows about the eight cows? I nodded. And in Nurabandi, everyone knows it too. His chest expanded with satisfaction. Always and forever, when they speak of marriage settlements, it will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for Sarita. So that's the answer, I thought. Vanity. And then I saw her. I watched her enter the room to place flowers on the table. She stood still a moment to smile at the young man beside me. Then she went out swiftly again. She was the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eyes, all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her the right. I turned back to Johnny Lingo and found him looking at her. 
or I found him looking at me. You admire her, he murmured. She, she's glorious, but she's not Sarita from Kinawata, I said. There's only one Sarita. Perhaps she does not look the way they say she looked in Kinawata. She doesn't. I heard she was homely. They all make fun of you because you let yourself be cheated by Sam Carew. You think eight cows were too many? A smile slid over his lips. No, but how can she be so different? Do you ever think, he asked, what it must mean to a woman to know that her husband has settled on the lowest price for which she can be bought? And then later when the women talk, they boast of what their husbands paid for them. One says four cows, another maybe six. How does she feel, the woman who was sold for one or two? This could not happen to my Sarita. Then you just did this to make your wife happy? I wanted to make Sarita happy, yes, but I wanted more than that. You say she is different. This is true. Many things can change a woman. Things that happen inside, things that happen outside. But the thing that matters most is what she thinks about herself. In Kinawata, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now she knows she is worth more than any other woman in the islands. I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman, but I wanted an eight-cow wife. Brothers and sisters, as we look at marriage, I think it is important for us to understand first our value before our Heavenly Father, but then also to remove selfishness from our hearts to be able to treat our spouses as worth eight cows. So that our marriages are an act of worship. Heavenly Father, teach us to worship you by valuing our spouse. We pray for those who are not married, that you would bless them in this season of their lives and that you would direct them in godly ways. We pray for those who are in broken marital relationships right now, that you would give them both wisdom and skill to handle that and that they would know you have not abandoned them, you love them. For those who are divorced, we would pray for your kindness and favor to be poured out upon them, and that a root of bitterness would not rise up in their hearts. Lord, help us as a church to so put this beautiful, beautiful institution of marriage on display that people would see the joy that is there, for there is despair on it nearly everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen.